we have a competition for you. Law CPD is running a competition for Juggle listeners throughout February and March. If you don't already know, Law CPD offer premium online professional development courses for lawyers. Everyone who enters the competition during February and March will receive a voucher to save $25 on their first purchase with Law CPD. Then each week between now and the end of March, one person will win a one-hour online CPD course of their choice. And the third way you can win the absolute major prize is at the end of March, we will draw a major prize winner and they will win 10 hours worth of online CPD courses of their choice. To enter, go to lawcpd.com.au forward slash the juggle competition. Good luck. If you want a satisfying career and a fulfilling family life, this is the podcast for you. Join me, Joel Lilovich. And me, Lucy Dickens, as we share strategies and advice to help you keep your balls in the air. Welcome to the Juggle Podcast. Hi, everyone. This is Joel Lilovich. And Lucy Dickens. Welcome back to the Juggle Podcast on what marks our one-year anniversary. Yeah, it was one year ago in 2018, we launched this podcast on International Women's Day, the 8th of March. And tomorrow is International Women's Day 2019. And so we thought it was a definitely a good time to, one, comment on the last year and two, do something that specially linked into um, the celebration and the theme for this year. So we had a little bit of a celebration when we released our 50th episode a couple of weeks back. And in that episode, episode 50, we did touch on some of the things that we've achieved through the podcast throughout the, throughout the last year. So go back and have a listen to that if you want to learn some more. Yeah, we'll link to it in the show notes. In planning for this episode, we looked at the International Women's Day theme. And if you didn't already know, there's actually quite a lot of themes out there. So when I first had a look at it, I came up with Balance for Better. And I thought, well, that's a really nice theme. And then I dug around a little bit more and realized that quite a few organizations like to come up with their own theme. Yes. And you confused me a lot because we recorded the interview, (laughs) today's interview with the theme, the UN Women Australian theme. And I then, after we recorded, went and did some more research about International Women's Day and found all these other themes. And I said, Jo, you've got it wrong. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We've chosen one of the many themes, right? Yeah. Well, I think the UN Women have a global theme. And then there's also a UN Women Australian theme. And that's the one that we decided to go to rather than the balance for better, which is probably the one that's being branded around most of the places. So the UN Women Australian theme is more powerful together. And I love this theme. Mm. I love the fact that it recognises that women, men and gender diverse people all play a role in advancing gender equality. It's not just about women pushing for women's rights. Yeah. And this was something that came up for us during that 50th episode celebration in our panel discussion, because one of the themes that came up again and again in the panel and also in the questions from the audience were how we can get more men involved in the conversations that we're having and how we all need to work together to achieve gender equality. And it's not just a women's issue. Yeah. So we wanted to explore it a bit more and it just worked out perfectly that this theme came up for International Women's Day and we could take it a bit further and look at how we can get men involved, how we can get women involved and how we can work together and the different things that happen when you actually work together with someone else or with different groups. And to make it even more exciting, we have a very special guest. We are joined today by author and journalist Catherine Fox. 
Catherine is someone that I had the opportunity to meet last year. I've kind of been stalking her a little bit. (laughs) I went to the book launch of her book, Stop Fixing Women. And then I subsequently went to an event that she was at in Perth with the Women Lawyers and Piddington Association. And then I stalked her again at her book launch for (laughs) celebrating women. (laughs) We have a big fan over here. I'm a fan. I'm a fan. (laughs) Yes. So that gives you a little bit of an insight to Catherine Fox if you didn't know who she was already. But effectively, she's described as one of Australia's leading commentators on women and the workforce. She wrote a column in the Australian Financial Review called Corporate Women for many years and has written a number of books, as I said, two that I've read and enjoyed, A Stop Fixing Women and the Celebrating Women book that she co-authored with Kirsten Ferguson, who created the successful Celebrating Women Facebook campaign. So... Take a listen and enjoy the episode. Hi, Catherine. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure. So tomorrow is International Women's Day, the 8th of March, 2019. And this year, I am really excited about the theme, More Powerful Together. It is so important, um, as at least I know the three of us think, and I'm sure a lot of other people do as well to recognise that women, men and gender diverse people all have a role to play in advancing gender equality. What really interests me though is the fact that we've spent so long, definitely huge amounts of changes have occurred in the last 50 years, 100 years, and we've spent so long working on how women need to have more equality at work and now we seem to be in a situation where women have a lot more equality at work but we're still doing all of the other things, we're still doing all of the at-home things. So is the future going to be about the role of men being more equal in the home? Oh, well, I think that's part of the future. It it has to be, doesn't it? But I do think these things are integrated together in a way that's very difficult to pull apart. So I'm often asked, do I think, in fact, that very thing, do do I think anything will change until domestic labour is divided in a different way. Yes. I actually can be a little bit contrary on this. um, And I actually don't think anything will change in the home until it changes more in the workplace. Okay. So I think we've still got, especially in Australia, we're very addicted to a male breadwinner model, uh, a primary breadwinner. That's, by the way, reflected in our tax system and in a whole lot of other reasons that that means we have women disproportionately in part-time work and so on. That's, you know, a a big area. But I think the problem is we're also still very locked into this idea, you know, that uh, there's a single trajectory over a career, that it's sort of up or out and and so on. I think all of that's got to change. We've got to have very different attitudes to work, to seniority, to how we pay people, what's a satisfying working life. And I think until we do that, we won't see that change in the home because I think women, for thousands of years, we have been the home makers and the carers and so on. I don't think that will shift until we see a shift in that whole idea of who a breadwinner is and who's to be taken seriously in the workplace. So I think both of them need to shift. Um, certainly, yes, men, but you know, men are struggling to actually pick up the domestic labour. Some of them are trying. I've mean, got to give them that. I mean, and men now do a lot more than my father did. My father did very little in the home. He did what he could, but it's a transformation. But they've still locked into these ridiculously long working hours, even though many of us could work from home. We've still got very traditional ideas about working lives. And I think until that changes, we will not see that shift in domestic labour either. And you only have to look into places like Scandinavia 
to see that actually that's taken quite a long time to shift, even though they have wonderful, you know, virtually free childcare, they have really progressive policies, but they're still finding some of that stuff really hard to shift. We talk about the shift and the change. And for me, all the topics that you've just mentioned make me think of the when we talk about the future of work and we talk about millennials and we talk about the change from the career ladder to people who are having more of a portfolio career. Do you think the generational change will be a big shift in these kinds of values and in helping with more equality and in helping men at work and at home with flexibility and the rest? I wish. (laughs) Seriously, I see a lot of intention. Then I see young people going into the workplace. I have three daughters who are just launching into the workplace Um, and and their young male friends and their boyfriends who are all fantastic and they have the best intentions and then they go in and guess what? They're not stupid. They see how the system works and before you know it, the patterns are being repeated because we are rewarding certain kinds of working styles. Goodness, we reward certain kinds of personalities. You can leave gender out of it. We're very, very traditional and very narrow about who we think is an appropriate worker, what kind of person is a good leader and so on. We've really got a long way to go on that. So what I think does happen, and I wrote about this in um, one of my previous books, Seven Myths About Women and Work, I think that's an unfair burden, actually. I think for the new generation, I think they'd love to have things differently. They'd love to see labour divided more and more fairly, but it's hard because the workplace structures haven't changed. One thing, though, I would say, and I remember the words of a partner at a big four accounting firm come back to me, and she was talking about the number of young young men kind of doing well, you know, mid-30s coming in and saying, oh, I need some flexibility. And she said they were incredibly reluctant. She said they really didn't want to do it. But their wives or partners were all in the workforce, often part-time, but they still nonetheless were in the workforce. So they needed flexibility. So I do see some little cracks opening up there because we know from the statistics we have in Australia that more and more women are in paid work and they continue to be even after they've had children. The number of women in paid work with kids under five has continued to increase and I don't see any sign of that changing. So little cracks, but I think for an entire generation to sort of go in and say, yes, we'll change it. I think their intentions are different, but the other just sort of cautionary note I'd sound, some of the data that has been collected recently, uh, University of Canberra, their 50-50 by 2020 centre, they did a survey at the end of last year and rather depressingly, uh, younger men were more conservative about who should be the breadwinner and who should look after the home, more conservative. Do you think that's a reflection of the unease and uncertainty that they've grown up in? Yeah, I think there's a lot of fear. I think one of the things that I'm, I'm going to be talking about with, I'm, I'm in the middle of my International Women's Day speeches at the moment, and I'm, what I'm talking about this time around is that a lot of what we've done, and we've done it for the best reasons, is to try and argue this on a logical basis. Here's the business case. Yes. This is what happens when you have diversity. The bottom line improves. <laughs> Decisions are better. Um, unfortunately, it hasn't really got us the progress we hoped it would. It's mm-hmm. been slow, it's been incremental, but it hasn't had the breakthrough. And I think that's because this is also about heart as well as head. It's about emotion and there's a great fear of loss. Yes. I think if you go into workplaces, the formal conversation is terrific. Here's our DNI policy. This is what we're doing. Start to talk to people informally. The men say, oh, you women are getting all the jobs. The women are saying the backlash is amazing. And that's driven by fear. Fear is one of those galvanising emotions. So, yes, I think you're right. On a broader brush scale, I think it's about the economy. People feel very, even though our economy's done very well, I think there's a sense of, oh, housing's going down, 
no wage increases. So I think, yeah, there's insecurity about that. There's also the rather unfashionable, or should I say not spoken about in polite company, people losing power who've had it for a long time and they don't like it. So is what you're saying, if the business case isn't getting us far enough or getting us far enough quickly enough, that we need to go back to thinking about just morals and what is the right thing to do? I absolutely agree with you. Um, it's the right thing to do. In a way, when we argue the business case, we are saying we're the exception, we're still different, um, and we're not. These are human rights. It's nothing to do with being male or female. We shouldn't have to put a case forward to show our value. We don't expect men to do that, and they shouldn't, and neither should we. So I think it's sort of eroding. Yeah, so it's the conscious business or the conscious capitalism kind of approach as opposed to starting with a business case. Yeah, I do agree. I, look, I think that the business case is important. Please, I mean, yeah, obviously. We're in business for a reason, yeah. Yeah, and you've got to sort of say there is a rationale for this. Nonetheless, I think depending on it and, and also sort of telling women, gosh, you're already confronting all of this structural bias and sexism. You've got backlash coming at you informally the whole time, and we all know what that's like. And now can you just please take up the cudgels and go and argue the business case? <laughs> I, think, I think it does our heads in in the way. And, and I think that while we've done it for years, it's also set up an expectation, which I think is an unhealthy one. Somehow it's always framed as though if you have more women, share prices, financial bottom lines, better, blah, blah. It almost sounds like we're coming in with a magic wand. That's very dangerous because we do not have a magic wand. And then the next thing that will happen is they'll look at all these boards with women on them and say, well, look what happens when you do have that many women. Look what happens and the share price didn't improve. Well, of course it didn't. We're human beings. So I'd go back to the point you just made. It's about doing the right thing. It's not about, you know, necessarily saying we have special talents. We don't. We're human beings. So using this theme for International Women's Day, More Powerful Together, how can we get these men to be believing that we are more powerful together and what is it that they can do to to make some change there are no simple answers to that yeah. and i think if we knew it you know yeah. heavens, we'd be doing it <laughs> one of the one of the things that i found an absolute breakthrough so the book that came out last year with kirsten ferguson womankind and speaking about that and launching it it was a real light bulb moment for so many women because we said you know what ease up it's so hard because they're all frustrated and kind of annoyed and they say, how can I change it? The guy I sit next to just tells me to shut up and <laughs> why should I get a promotion because I'm a woman? It should be on merit and blah, blah. So we were basically saying to them, actually, you're right. That kind of stuff's really annoying. It's not unimportant, but it's kind of really, and it's hard to see any progress. What you can do is support each other. Mm-hmm. And you've always done it. We've always been terrific. We self-organise into groups of all kinds, at the school gate, book clubs, everything. We do it in workplaces all the time. Meetings are often held in the ladies' loo, as we yeah. know, <laughs> um, where much important information is exchanged. But what we were saying to them is use that and be overt about it because over the years, and I've observed this, I'm sure you have, you kind of get ridiculed for it. It's, oh, the girls are sticking up for each other or it's dismissed. It's, oh, it's the girls' network, is it? You know, what we were saying on the back of things like Me Too and Kirsten's wonderful hashtag celebrating women campaign, you can actually do a huge amount of good for each other. That's something you can achieve. You can do it. You can do it immediately. And so many women have come up to us and just said, my goodness, that was like taking this huge weight off my shoulders. I immediately started to put it into practice. And we have a moment on the back of things like Me Too. We do have a moment where there's a bit more listening going on. Not enough, but a bit more. Driven by fear, I have to say. 
So it's so true, you know, more powerful together is not just women and men working together. It's also women working together with women and that we as women are more powerful together. And Lucy and I have a Facebook group where we encourage women who are doing this juggle of career and family to join us and to share the challenges and and support each other. One of the things that we've found happening is that men who are requesting to join this group, which we set up with the idea that it was a, a women's only group, which has led to us kind of asking ourselves, should we allow men to be present? We've never excluded them from our in-person events, but we've always excluded them from that group. Yeah. And it's a conflict because we want a safe space for women to feel that we can come together. But at the same time, we know that men are important. They need to be part of the conversation and they need to be involved. And it's finding that balance between what is right. Yeah, it's a tricky one, isn't it? It is. Because in theory, and I, I do understand when people say, oh, but you have women's only groups, and yet feminists have been arguing for years that there shouldn't be men-only clubs, that there shouldn't be those kind of strictures. My answer to that is always the world's going through a massive upheaval around gender, and it is massive. I mean, we've had thousands, actually thousands of years of patriarchy, certainly through Western civilization. So in a short century or so, there is upheaval on that basis if you look back to the suffragettes and say that's kind of marking the new era when we finally got the vote. And I think that what's happened is until things are fairer and we are progressing in that direction, one step forward, two steps back sometimes, but we are progressing in that way. Until then, I think safe spaces for women are incredibly important. That's because men are not facing the same things that we are. And I think your point about a safe space, the conversations that we have, it's not secret women's business, but it is a place where we feel we can talk openly. Um, and I think that that's important. Whether it should always exclude men, I think, is, is something that can change over time. I, I do. It's not set in stone. But I do remember when Liz Broderick set up the Male Champions of Change, and contentious as it was, that she said the same thing. She wanted those men to be able to have conversations together that they wouldn't have if women were in those meetings. Yes. And I kind of get that. So I think for the time being, not ideal, doesn't have to be a blanket rule, But I think that idea of having safe spaces and networks that can come together, give support, exchange information, give each other referrals and so on, the kind of stuff, for example, in a workplace that men often do all the time, informally, but they do it all the time, that's what women are doing. And so I see it as still having incredible value. Yeah, and I guess that is the point. It's not that men are excluded from everything. It's just that here's a small space that we're going to use for this purpose. Yeah, as I say, it's not black and white. It can change over time. Some organisations do say, yeah, we want men. You know, we'd, we'd love to have more men involved. And I think the good sign is that men are wanting to be involved. And that's what makes it so difficult because when they do want to be involved and when you know that the men who are asking to be involved are genuine who are there to want to help and to support the change and to make things better, it's really difficult to be able to turn to them to say, sorry, you can't be involved in this way or in this group because you know it's genuine. It's not like they're coming in to listen to what these women's conversations are and, you know, throw a male's perspective in a derogatory way. It's supportive. Yeah. But on the other hand, if you're saying that they're welcome along to events that you have, 
you're not actually excluding them totally and you can make that case and say the discussions we have yeah it's kind of a, it's the safe space for us but we would love your input um, we would love to hear from you and uh, we're delighted that you're interested enough to be involved you know so I get that I just don't think you can be hard and fast about some of that stuff and oh, that's good to know and it's funny because I was saying to my my husband is uh, in my family we have non-traditional roles and he's predominantly at home and we've spoken about the issues and the fact that there aren't as many places for men to go. And I actually wish some more men would sort of step up and create those places like the male champions of change, but in a more just your your average person on the street kind of way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that would be great. I think, yeah, men have different ways of socialising in a more broad sense, don't they? I mean, you know, the whole men shed sort of movement and so on, um, which is fine. One of the things that I think is genuinely interesting over the years, when I occasionally go to speak to a, about this topic to an organisation, and I'll say, oh, it's our women's network that's organised it, but occasionally they have a plus one uh, rule, so everyone has to bring a bloke. And when I've done that, the conversation, they come in, the blokes are all sitting there like this. Sheepish. No, not sheepish. Not like, sheepish. I didn't want to be. Didn't here. want to be here, yeah. <laughs> and so then as the conversation progresses, as you know, it's a conversation about how do you live? How do you live your life? What are your priorities? What's a career? What's a job? What's satisfying? And it's a broad and very rich conversation. And they usually invariably relax and then ask me lots of questions. Yeah. <laughs> and I often think it's a shame that more men don't have access to yeah. that kind of discussion because it's a very rewarding one and something that often enough we don't do in our day-to-day lives, whether it's the home front or in the workplace. So I actually do think that there's something really rich, a rich vein to be tapped into in organisations where they can make those discussions a bit broader, which is why I have a little bit of a rant about um, in Stop Fixing Women, about always siphoning women off, you know, and saying, oh, you need special leadership skills, which I think just entrenches the very stereotypes that, of course, most of these problems in the first place. But also I think it's sort of saying you have different needs. Well, no, you don't. And I think having those kind of experiences together with men is actually a really important one. Really important conversations and ideas can come out of that. Yeah, it's interesting. I met with one of our listeners who is a male listener and he listens and he says he keeps trying to get his wife to listen and she doesn't. Maybe she will now, but maybe I don't know. But she he, she keeps trying, he keeps trying to get his wife to listen. And I said, "What is it that you enjoy?" Because the majority of our listeners are women, and it, it's similar to what you just said. I think there's an expectation that we're talking about these issues that are anti-men, but it's not. It's actually just about how you live your life. Yeah, and and that's kind of yeah. It must they might when they realise that they must be ah oh, actually this is something that I want to be involved in. That's right, because it is their universal issues, aren't they? You know, it's uh, the juggle. It's something that everyone does. I mean, yes, demands at the moment are out of kilter, but nonetheless, they're, they're increasingly issues that are spoken about and written about and debated. And I really do think it's fascinating. I wouldn't be doing it for all these years, <laughs> writing all these books. I think it's fascinating. And we spend so much time in paid work, which is why, you know, my career in journalism, I was often writing about almost the psychology of work. Mm. Um, because it's something, again, we said, sort of oh, it's all about result. Well, actually, no, it's about sort of very human dynamics. Relationships. And yeah. relationships, exactly. It sounds like some of what we're going to have to do is very much in our own homes. And that really, if we can encourage more women to be pushing the traditional boundaries in their own home, we will probably see more change much faster. Yeah. Because if we can get those, you know, women to sort of say to their husbands, well, why should I do it all? Or 
you know, where's the fair divide here of the labour? Yeah. But we're then going to see, as you suggested earlier, those men turning around to their workplaces and asking for flexibility, which is then going to mean that those workplaces have to implement that flexibility. And I would also add that um, just as importantly, the men also look at that long and hard and do and initiate some of that. So I know it sounds a bit pie in the sky, but I, I think these, these are very topical issues now. And as I said before with that example, you know, guys who've got young kids now, well, there's a certain amount of that that has to happen. So, you know, having a long, hard look at how your life works and who's doing most and how you can divide that up differently is really important. So, yes, women often have to initiate that, but I think wouldn't it be great if we had more high-profile men also being role models and saying it's time that this changed and it's perfectly viable Anyone can cook. Anyone can clean a toilet. Um, and it's time we all, we all looked at it differently. One of the things that I love about this idea of women supporting women in the group that we foster, we're often encouraging, I mean, Lucy and I both have family dynamics where we're much more equally sharing the home caring responsibilities than is traditional. And one of the things that comes up is the fact that I think a lot of women find that difficult to start. And when I think about that, it reminds me of attending your book launch last year for Womankind. And there was the discussion about, I think the comment that you made was the men laughing gleefully in the background as women refer to themselves as their own worst enemy, which I just just loved. And I also saw that as being linked to these um, four stages of gender awareness that Holly Kramer yeah. has come up with, which you talk about in the book, the, the stages of being oblivious, being in denial, awakening and then advocacy of gender awareness. How do we get more women to understand that those phases exist and to move them through them a lot more quickly? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, it's fascinating, the four stages. I really, Kirsten got all of that information from Holly and I thought it was a really interesting way of looking at it. And like you, I've seen a lot of women go through it. One of the most encouraging things to me is um, after things like the Me Too movement, I think that there's been a lot more moving through a couple of those stages. And I think that because women have stood up with each other and said, that happened to me, you're not making this up. And it's done something so important. It's legitimized and affirmed things that they'd been told for years weren't happening Mm. or they were exaggerating or, you know, it's just the rough and tumble of business life. Well, you know what? Not anymore. Now, yes, people say, oh, it's gone too far. Yes, I would agree. There are some elements of it, but it's a social movement. My hope, and maybe I'm being an optimist, is that some of that has speeded up those shiftings. Um, The other thing I think is fascinating, and we quoted Sheryl Sandberg in um, Womankind, and she's written a couple of pieces about this and said she bought the whole catty women thing. And now she just says, let's see this for what it is. Women always have stood up for each other. This has been exaggerated out of all proportion. Absolutely. Reflected in popular culture and so on. I look at my daughters again and I think they completely see through that. They just don't believe that for a minute. So I think there's there's quite a recalibration going on. And I think the more that we do that, the more we get through to those final stages where people just go, hang on. That I was just being sold a, a really convenient version by people who wanted to see things stay the same, who had a vested interest in things staying the same. I'm quite optimistic about that shifting. Yeah, they're perfect examples of being more powerful together, aren't they? I mean, especially if you consider 
the stages of oblivious denial. If you haven't experienced some of these things, let's go with the Me Too movement. If you haven't experienced that yourself, it's easy to be oblivious to it if you haven't seen it happen. But then the more people come together and say, well, this is happening to me, this has happened, this has happened, then others start to realise and then kind of progress through those stages. Yes. And while I think that all the efforts that have been made over the years have all been at their time important, I think we did kind of overdo it a little bit on the whole girl power, you can do anything you want stuff. (laughs) And when my daughters were in high school, I used to be, I'm sure, seen as a, a little bit of a troublemaker. I'm used to it because I would say, you know, this whole girl power thing, let's also be realistic. It's fantastic to get our young women to aspire. And yes, they can be educated. There's no barriers in Australia. We're very lucky like that. But we've also got to be realistic about what happens once they leave the walls of the academy and they're not going to be treated in the same way. So I think that you're right. Fewer women possibly now are confronting really overt sexism. Fantastic. I'm delighted. But they will at some point. And for many women, we know it's around the time they start a family. So I think that's when that acceleration into stage three often occurs. Having children can be very radicalising. It's when many a a stern feminist is born. So I think that can really throw you. And I think, unfortunately, we still haven't made too many changes to that. I definitely felt it accelerate, as you say, when I had children. Mm -hmm. It was always there. I think I've been brought up in a household with strong views about equality for women, but I felt a sense of fight in my workplace, you know, that real need to stand up for myself, asking for pay increases and those kinds of things and feeling that almost a sense of not being respected or, oh my gosh, I can't believe this is, I'm having this conversation. Whereas that wouldn't have been the case if I had been a male, but then having kids, definitely that was the big change because you start to realize that you've got these little people who are dependent on you. And it feels like it's only you that they're dependent on and that nothing else has changed for anyone else. Yeah. And also attitudes when you go back after um, leave and so on. I mean, that was one of the biggest shocks to me. I had a great boss at the time and I did work part-time and I had a lot of support, but I found just a general sort of attitude from men and women. It was sort of like, oh, well, you know, you're not quite as serious about your job anymore. Yes. I think that all of that is still around. And maternity discrimination, by the way, is not good. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, despite all the changes we've made, the right to flexible work and so on, there's still some pretty ordinary examples around. So sadly, we've still got a lot of battles to fight on that front. We do. What do you say to that? How do you think we approach that? I mean, you talk about this a little bit in Stop Fixing Women, where you're saying that it's the organisations, there's structures that have been established by males and they've you know, in in that kind of way. What are some of the things that you think need to be done to change that specifically in relation to maternity? I feel like I'm sort of shadowing Kenneth Hayne uh, and the (laughs) uh, Royal Commission here. (laughs) The law, the frameworks are there. Yes. By and and large, uh, nothing's ever perfect, but they've shifted enormously. When I started out in the workplace, there was no... There was one year's mandatory unpaid leave, which some organisations, even though under law you were allowed it, would not let you take. But, you know, that was it. Now we have, you know, paid parenting leave. We have, you know, we have quite a lot of differences around flexibility and so on. Again, not as far as we would like it to have gone, but it's changed. The problem is, in fact, not the theory, it's the practice. And I think that if you talk to people, as I do, in so many different sectors and all around Australia, some organisations are fantastic, but they're the exceptions. And the rest of the time, even though, yeah, that's what we say we do, that's our policy, 
actually putting it into practice is really quite tricky. So I don't think it's about reinventing the wheel. I think we've actually got a pretty good framework there. It's making sure that it's put together properly and that women who fall foul of it actually have redress, that they can actually use channels to actually take that up and not be dragged through the mire for doing it. So I think in much the same way we've seen sexual harassment um, starting to change and I hope change more uh, responses from workplaces. I hope that happens too. I actually think it's the same as the first topic that we touched on, which is that people need to change because it's the right thing to do. Absolutely. And um, the other thing about uh, sort of those very old-fashioned attitudes about, oh, women should be at home with the kids and blah, blah, blah. I think we kind of kid ourselves that that's really transformed. Now, it has shifted, but I still don't think it's gone nearly as far as we'd like to think. And certainly in certain pockets, people who perhaps socioeconomically are in different sort of areas, that's quite difficult to shift. So, look, I think these things take a while. So I think in, in some ways, in fact, the policies can be fantastic and quite far-reaching and far-sighted. It's the implementation. Yeah. And that's what we see all the time. I mean, you just need to look at the legal industry and the, the results last year from the Workplace Gender Equality Agency and all the backlash that came out from the different law firms saying, why have they got a citation? There's no flexibility or anything in that particular law firm. Yeah. And law's interesting anyway, isn't it? And I'm not a lawyer, obviously, but I go into a lot of law firms and I always, when they say to me, oh, what can we do? I say, well, you have no excuse. Yeah. And <laughs> you have had women outperforming men in law degrees and way disproportionately graduating from them for decades. You've had a pipeline that is there. They're going into your firms. There's no question about that. And you've still got, what, 22, 23% equity partners. So you tell me. Yeah. You know, what are you not doing? It's a clear example of where a written policy is not the answer. Completely agree. So I think, you know, that's an interesting case because I'm often told, oh, but we're in engineering, we're in this. And I say, okay, well, tell me, why is this the case in law firms? And people, oh, hmm. Because it's always about supply, right? Oh, we don't have enough women. And you say, well, how does that work in law? Yeah. It doesn't. 65% law graduates, women. So that's big picture, as you say, but what do you have any suggestions on some everyday steps that everyday people can sort of implement to be more powerful together to really bring this theme to life in 2019? There's a whole section of womankind where we talked about amplification. Yes. Um, Not our word, wish it was. It's a fantastic word. It's a great word. The example came out of the Obama White House where the women, you know, clubbed together really. And there's wonderful tactics, you know, just kind of going into a meeting where you know you're going to be outnumbered. Make sure that you back each other. So if someone says something, other woman jumps in and says, great idea expand on that, etc. So actually working your tactics out can be really handy. Making sure that if you see a good performer or someone in your place, you mention it to other people. Sue's doing a fantastic job. I think she'd be really good on that next assignment or have we thought about blah, blah, just making that verbal. As I say, I think women have done this, but we've been a little reluctant because we've been beaten up because of it. And there's good stats around that. So doing that overtly, uh, celebrating achievements, using your social media. And it doesn't matter when I say achievements, I just mean anyone you know, you know, set up some sort of community fundraiser. Great. Let's tell everyone. Isn't that fantastic? So whenever you can and wherever you can. Um, on another level, I just wanted to, I, I, I throw in a couple of little snippets, I suppose, that I've collected over the years. Jamila Rizvi, the, the wonderful writer and columnist, has a great one. She said, you know, when someone has a conversation in the workplace, usually informal, but it's somebody will say something racist or sexist and you're all kind of 
well, at least half the group's probably uncomfortable, but no one knows what to say. She says, I have a tactic now. I lean forward and say, could you repeat that? Yes. And she said, it's fantastic because they immediately realise, because they know that they've said something. It was borderline or inappropriate. It was borderline. Mm-hmm. Everyone else knows and kind of goes, yeah, that's not on. If they do repeat it, they look even sillier. But it's a really good sort of circuit breaker. So I think things like that can be really helpful as well. Well, you share a similar tactic in Stop Fixing Women where, where you say, and I think it's you unless you're quoting someone else and you can correct me, is where you say, what did you mean by that? Yeah. When somebody makes that, that kind of comment, um, yeah. so sim- similar kind of thing. Yeah, that actually came from a company, Horizon. They had this wonderful program and they, yeah. the guys came up with that, their internal male group, mm-hmm. and they said, yeah, if someone says something, I mean by that. Mm. Um, and they got permission. They basically said anyone can, and people did start to use it. It was fantastic. But I think things like that can be really helpful. I think those are the really tricky situations where you kind of think, oh, that makes me so uncomfortable, but I don't know what to say. So sometimes those things can be really handy and makes everyone feel a bit okay. Yeah, that's not acceptable. I think this International Women's Day theme could be really great for a lot of people this year to keep in the forefront of their minds, this idea of more powerful together. And if you just have that in front of your mind, how can I be with someone else, together with someone else? It could see a lot of change, hopefully. I think so. And I think I'd only just say one of the things as a management and business writer for three decades, one of the things I would observe is that the reason I think that message went away is we've been through a really huge era of individualism. So your way ahead, your way to improve, it's about you, 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 brand me. It was a huge trend, very big in the US, not surprisingly. (laughs) But over here, it was big too. I think it's going away and I think people are thinking back to the whole collective, the power of the collective. And I think that's a good thing. Yeah, there's a lot more movement towards community. So we have a couple of questions that we like to ask everyone who's on, on the podcast with us. And the first is, do you have words that you live by, Catherine? Is there some kind of mantra for your life or perhaps more than one? Um, no, and I don't like mantras. And I tell you the ones I really, really don't like. I hate it when people <laughs> get up and say women should be more resilient. And I think, yeah, really? You try walking in our shoes and then tell us to be more resilient. I think it's patronising and ridiculous. So that's one of my pet hates. non One of the ones. Yeah. yeah. The, the other one, the non-mantra. I have a non-bucket list. I know. Oh. I can't help myself. The other one is Kate Jenkins, the Sex Discrimination Commissioner, gave us a lovely one. She said, you know that you can't be what you can't see, which is, you know, yeah, we get it. We get it. We need role models. But she said, think of all the women who didn't let that put them off for one second mm-hmm. and they went crashing through and said yeah I'm going to do that I want to do that there's no other woman doing it. I'm going to do it and I thought what a great point she made you know so yes we need role models completely understand that but I love that point you can be what you can't see sometimes and then you open the door for everyone else yeah well someone has to be first someone has to be first and they deserve all our thanks and gratitude but I just thought that was a really interesting one too and I thought yeah Sometimes these things, they're great little sayings, but they're a little bit bland and sometimes they're very contradictory. We give women so much contradictory advice. It's not funny. It makes your head spin. So um, (laughs) just kind of do what you think. (laughs) And we didn't even get into asking you about Jamila Rizvi, who we also had on the the podcast. So we kind of asked her a little question about, so, you know, you've written a bit of book about Not Just Lucky and Catherine's written a book about Stop Fixing Women. And how do you put those two together and she had a bit of a laugh and said that you've often appeared on panels together and 
and laughed through that. We have, we have. And I know a lot of people absolutely love her book and it's a great book. And she's a great operator. I have have a huge amount of respect for her. You know, the other thing is women can have different points of view and be completely civil about it. We don't all sing from the same song sheet. Or have to be catty about it. Or have to be catty. Long may it be the case. (laughs) All right. And the second question we'd like to ask of all of our guests on the show is if you have one piece of advice that you would give to women who are managing their career family juggle, what would be your key piece of advice? I always say the same thing and it's, it's not particularly blinding, but it's just um, hang in there. Hang in yeah. there. There'll be so many times where you think I can't do this anymore. It's driving me nuts. And I'm certainly not suggesting that you get to the point where your mental health or physical health is compromised. Absolutely get that. But just take it from someone who's got a very significant birthday this year. <laughs> very scary. Um, <laughs> The, one of the things I do look back on with great satisfaction is that I hung in through a time where I had three children under the age of three um, and I was working in a newsroom and, yeah, it was really hard work. But my lovely husband and my mother and my father all said, you know what, you love your job. And, I look, I never really toyed with the idea of dropping out and I'm so glad I didn't. I cannot tell you I am so grateful with every single day that I kept going because work, yes, it can be horrible, but so can being at home. And my mother was a 50s mother and she always said, don't do what I did. And I think we've got to remember that. We're very, very fortunate to be able to have jobs when we can. I know for some people that is not a choice and the jobs they have are not great. And I do not deny that for a second. But our capacity to earn a living, to have some purpose in our lives is incredibly important. And you can, you don't have to have it all. That's just a rubbish expression to make you feel guilty but you can do both. Yeah, perfect. That sounds like the perfect summary of what our podcast is all about, isn't it, Jane? Absolutely. We definitely think that you can do both. I had a friend the other day who had a nice conversation with her grandmother, which was her complaining to her grandmother about the lack of work opportunities for her as a as a young mum and how difficult it was at the, at the time. And her and I think her comment to her grandmother was, oh, you know, if it was so much easier, I wish I could just be like a 1950s housewife. And her grandmother, of course, hit the roof and said, don't you dare say that. We've worked incredibly hard to get you all the options and things that you have now. So, yeah, I think people forget the significant downside. So keep going. Hang in there. Sounds like a bit, a bit like a mantra. It does, know. I think. Sorry. <laughs> I'll have to rephrase it because I couldn't possibly have a mantra. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today, Catherine. It's been wonderful to talk to you. A great pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Catherine. Thank you so much for listening. That's all from us today. Don't forget to check out Law CPD to enter their CPD competition and to receive your voucher of $25 towards any of their online courses. And you can find the links in the show notes. See you next time. Happy juggling. Happy juggling.